0: So I would really encourage you to take out your Bibles this morning. If you didn't think to bring one, there should be one in a pew rack near you. And to open it to Revelation chapter 20, there is a Bible app event available for this. And so if you have the Bible app and you click on the little menu, look for an event near you, uh, you should be able to find that. And uh, if you're so inclined, uh, you can follow along that way. So have you ever uh, flown over a body of water like an ocean? How many here have flown over the ocean? Yeah, let's see. Okay, probably about a fourth of us, maybe a third of us have done that, yeah. Um, I can remember the first time I did it, got in a plane, uh, well, not the first time, but the first time I did it from New York or from Dallas, from from near the coast, I can remember you get in a plane and you go out over the ocean, and and you're looking as you're close to the shore, and you can see the boats there, and for the most part, they kind of seem randomly scattered around. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, I grew up on a farm, and so did some, you know, baling hay and things like that. And at the end of the day, you reach into your pocket, you turn it inside out, and there's a lot of... Uh, pieces of stubble that are in there and you just put them out. I can remember one time I was walking as a little boy uh, from the barn and I was walking through a puddle because this is what little boys do and I reached in and I pulled out straw, and it just kind of scattered and kind of floated every which way on that puddle. That's the way those ships always look to me. Like they're just randomly arranged with no real direction, no real purpose. There they are, drifting. But as you leave the continental shelf and you get into the deep waters, you begin to see a different kind of boat. You see ocean-going vessels. And you notice they're not just drifting, that they are moving with purpose. They're carrying their goods, maybe oil, maybe automobiles, whatever. They have a captain. They have a destiny. They are moving with intention. They have direction. Now, I want you to do this. I want you to think for a moment about those two images. The ship that is moving with direction, knows where it's going to go and is intentional about it, and ships, by all appearances, just seem to be kind of you know, floating around. They're not really floundering, but they're just drifting. You know? And they kind of remind you of a leaf, almost, that's blowing through the streets of Kerwinsville and going to end up in Susquehanna. It's just there. It's just going. What do you think of those two images of those two kinds of ships? And I want to ask you, if you were to characterize your life by one of those images, which would it be? That's not a bad question to consider. If you were to characterize your life as one of these, either a boat that's kind of drifting, going with the tide, or an ocean liner that's cutting its path across the sea, which would you want to be? Now, I'm going to admit to you, there are times I want to be the drifter. (laughs) Right? Had a heavy week, had a big week, I just really I just want to sit here, and I kind of picture myself, you know, some of those boats are probably fishing boats, and there are times in my life that if I was on them, I would not even cast it out. I would just keep the the, uh, line reeled in, I just put on my feet and just sit on that boat. You know I get that. There are times you just want to drift a little bit. But what about your life? Do you want your life to be marked that way, or do you want your life to be one that is that is directed with purpose? I can tell you from Revelation twenty that your life probably should have some kind of purpose and direction in it. I use the word probably casually there because I don't think it fits. From Revelation 20, I want to propose to you that your life definitely should have direction to it and purpose. When you read Revelation 20, you begin to see that history is moving in a specific direction, that God has a plan for history. History isn't just a boat that's drifting about. This chapter of the book of Revelation shows you that it has a direction and it has a destination. History has a direction and a destination. I don't pretend to understand all the concepts that God has outlined and touches on this on in this passage. I, I don't even think I'm supposed to. Honestly, I honestly don't think I'm supposed to understand every instance, Gog and Magog, of Revelation chapter 20. There's only 15 verses there, but it's just way too much to understand. He doesn't go into the detail that a lot of people would like him to there. But there are some things that you can see quite clearly. One of the things I see when I look at this passage is that there will be a specific time when Satan is confined. And we're going to read this passage kind of a few verses at a time in the early part of the service, so you want to refer back to your Bible frequently. There will be a specific time when Satan is confined. It's part of God's plan for history. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having a key to the abyss, and holding a great chain, (laughs) holding in his hand a great chain. Pause for a minute. Maybe you've read that a hundred times and you're not thinking about it. Think about that. If you see an angel, and he's only got two things. He's got a key to the abyss, and he's got a chain. You know that boy is coming to do some business, right? He is not coming to drink iced tea with you. He has a purpose, and intention. Verse 2, he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Okay, you can see it, right? There is a time when Satan is thrown into the abyss. There is a time when Satan remains imprisoned, incarcerated, confined in the abyss. And there is a time when Satan is released from the abyss. History is moving in a certain direction, even during this time period in Revelation 20. And as I look at this chapter, I see some other things. I see there is a time when the saints are resurrected. It is part of God's plan for history. Let's pick up at verse 4 where we left off. And I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who were beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Pause. This isn't in my notes, but I want to talk to you about the second death. The first death is when you expire, (laughs) when you stop breathing, And we call the coroner, and then the pastor says the words, and they put you in the ground. That's the first death. The second death is eternal death. The second death is about the lake of burning sulfur. The second death is spoken about in the last verse of this chapter. Now, this resurrection, remember I see a time when saints are resurrection. This isn't something like happened to Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus comes forth. forth. Jesus calls him out of the grave. And he, he comes out and he's alive again. Nor is it like when Jesus raised the widow of Nain from the dead. No, nope, the widow of Nain's son from the dead. Remember, it's a funeral. This widow is coming through. She's weeping. Her son is dead. And Jesus interrupts the funeral. Who does that? The guy that's going to raise that boy from the dead. There's, there's one, right? Or even when Eutychus did what some of all of us have done, fallen asleep during a church service and fell out a window. Well, I never fell out the window, but I have fallen asleep in church services. And died, and he was raised from the dead. This resurrection is distinct from that, and, and and all resurrections up until this one are distinct from that. Because all of those people died again. So theologians say those were resuscitations, but I haven't seen the widow of Nain's son or Lazarus walking around. Have you? Just on a Star Trek movie one time, I think I saw Lazarus. But that's about it, right? Because they died again. But these people will not die again. They're not walking around today. Um, I'm sorry. They they will live. Well, look at verse 6 again, the last part of it. The second death has no power of them. They will be priests of God and Christ and reign with him for a thousand years. History is moving in a specific direction. The third thing I see is there will be a time when Jesus is physically present here on earth. Zechariah 14, which we're not going to go to, speaks of his feet standing on the Mount of Olives. And that's part of God's plan for history. In fact, the latter part of verse 4 says they came to life and reigned with Christ. Makes sense. Jesus said he would return. When he was caught up into the air in Acts chapter 1, and if you're one of the disciples, you know, you're kind of standing there and Jesus ascends into the air and disappears behind a cloud, and they're doing exactly what you and I would do. Like, what just happened? Where'd he go? And God, in his mercy, sends a couple angels to say this. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. He's coming back the same way that he left, not a different way, the same way that he left. And we know he's here, his feet on the Mount of Olives, because history is moving in a specific direction. Fourth, I see there's a great battle. Let's keep reading this part of God's plan for history. In verse seven, when a thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and go out and deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather to get them together—I'm sorry—and to gather them for battle. In number, they're like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's holy people, the city He loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beasts and the false prophet had been fl- thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever. So this period of time that God is speaking about in Revelation 20 begins with Satan being bound. And then it continues with Satan having zero influence. And then it ends with Satan being released, engaging in battle, and being finally defeated and thrown into the abyss forever and ever. History is moving in a specific direction. Fifth. You see, there's a final judgment. It begins at verse 11, and you can see it's part of God's plan for history. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. Think about that for a minute. Think about that for a minute. There's a great white throne, and whatever is going to happen at that throne is so phenomenal that, picture, that Scripture pictures heaven and earth wanting to hide. I don't want to see this. I don't know what this is, but I want to hide. Heaven and earth are kind of personified there as saying, this is a bad time. Listen to what happens. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. Keep that in mind. There are books, and then there's a distinct book. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This comes at the end of this 1,000 years that is depicted here. It is unavoidable. It is final. History, hear this sentence again. I've said it half a dozen times. History is moving in a specific direction. And so you'll want to prepare for that. You will want to prepare... For the future, you'll want to be sure that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you will want to live intentionally as you think about that future. Not like some ship along the shore that's just kind of going with the tide and the waves, wherever they're taking them. You'll want to live intentionally. If history is moving toward a future, you will want to live intentionally in that stream. And you will want to help others find what you have found. So they too can live intentionally. History is moving in a specific direction. You'll want to prepare. How do you do that? How do you prepare? I want to suggest that it would be helpful if you bore in mind at all times that history is moving in this direction. And if you saw the life you have to live in this stream of history as a gift given you by God that has a path that you must follow. Just as God has a direction for history, he has a direction in mind for you. Max Locato says this. He says, You weren't an accident. You weren't mass produced. You aren't an assembly line product. You were deliberately planned, specifically gifted, and lovingly positioned on earth by the master craftsman. Locato says that because he understands that life is indeed a gift. I never saw that more clearly than when my children were born. My first child, Timothy, he was born on a Sunday morning. 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock, Laurel, we went into the hospital, 7, something like that. He was born at 7.35. Yeah, I'd probably remember that if I went through what you went through, right, sweetheart? Yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, just think about it. That's Tim, you know. Oh, you have to work today? I work one day a week. And that's the week he uh, decides to show up, right? Yeah, that's my boy. So there he was. He was born. It was a miraculous thing. I mean, anybody who watches that, it just lays to rest any ugly rumors that there is no God, you know? And I held him, cleaned him, watched him nurse for the first time. And then I went home, put on my suit, and went to church and preached. And in the middle of that sermon, I broke down and cried. I do that sometimes. You know, I cry sometimes about an emotional thing. It wasn't that big an emotional deal, but I cried. (laughs) You know why? Because I really saw with amazement what a gift life is. Life is an amazing gift. And you know, you know that gifts are given with an intention in mind. You know? You you don't give my wife a shotgun to go hunt rabbits because she has no intention of doing that. And you think about, well, how will she use this? By the way, I'm going to spoil a present for you, Laurel. I looked on the table back there. Your secret sister gave you a pie pan. And it says inside, it's a pie plate, you know, to bake a pie in. It says, pie me. I really like that, right? That's a good thing. Why would they give that to Laurel? Because they know Laurel is a baker and they have an intention that she will bake me a blueberry pie even this afternoon. <laughs> Here's the point. Gifts are given with a purpose in mind. For the most part, people who don't believe there is a God find themselves struggling with meaning and purpose. Now, if you're a young adult, this is a good time to tune in. Okay? If, you can, if, you can, if you're even in high school, Tune in here for me, okay? This will sound a little like eh, philosophical, but it'll have meaning to you as you continue down, down the road. Let me say it again. For the most part, people who don't believe in God struggle to find meaning and purpose. They don't see the kind of direction in their life that we're talking about. They lack a sense of spiritual belonging, and therefore, spiritual intention, and they might even end up believing that they are what Dr. Reamer calls cosmic accidents, like, I'm just here because the accident laid an egg. I mean, the, the universe laid an egg. Here I am, you know? I'm a cosmic, I have no purpose, I have no, I have no reason to be. I want to say this, that is intensely burdensome. That is intensely burdensome to think that you have no reason to be. But as people who believe in a creator God, a God who made us intentionally, gifted us with this thing called life, the question of purpose comes kind of naturally to us. And we know the answer is going to come from God. That God gave us life because as we travel this route in history, he has something in mind for us. He has a history for you to live. He has a direction for you to travel. You were made intentionally with intentionality. And this is important. It's important to realize that, that this idea is not a burden, it's actually a relief. Because I can imagine someone saying to themselves, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor Steve. I don't know if I want to know that God has an intention for my life. It's my life, and I want to do what I want to do, but I don't want to do what somebody else wants me to do. Did you get all those I do's? I do, I do, I do, right? I got that. I want to do what I want to do. Who does God think he is, sticking his finger into my life to kind of tweak it or to interfere with it. I don't know that I can trust him. I don't know that I want to surrender to him. I don't know that I want God poking around in my life. I get that. But I want to help you with that question. Okay. I want you to imagine. Who here is 16 years old? Anybody? That's a shame. Yeah, there he is. Was that Brian Warren? Brian, you are not 16. <laughs> I want you to imagine you're 16 years old. I want you to imagine that your dad is a mechanic. And I want you to imagine for your 16th birthday, he buys you a car. And while we're having this little fantasy cruise, he gets you the Dodge Demon that's over 700 horsepower. You up for that? All right, yeah, okay. So he buys you this nice car. He's a good dad, and he knows mechanics, and and he's all good. and, And one morning you get up and you look out. There it is in the driveway, and the engine hood is up on it, and your dad is poking around under the engine hood there. Are you alarmed? Not at all. You are not alarmed because you know that your father gave you that as a gift and you know that your father is a good mechanic and you know that whatever your father's doing in there is a good thing. Do you get the point? Did you connect the dots there? Your father in heaven gave you life. (laughs) Why would he do anything to damage it or destroy it? In fact, Whatever this master designer is going to do in your life will only serve to increase its richness, its texture, its color. It will only make it better. Because he's a good father. And he's a master designer. Okay. Let me get real personal and real honest. My daughter and her family feel that God has a purpose for their life. And they have relocated an ocean away from Laurel and me. Occasionally, someone will say to me, Steve, it must be just so awful to have your children overseas. And at first, I felt like it would be. In fact, when my children put on their shoes and got ready to head away, so to speak, this thought crossed my mind. What was I thinking allowing all those missionaries to speak in my church? Honestly. Real God, real life, real people. That was a real thought that I had. But I can honestly say to you, I can honestly say to you that I love it. Let me look you in the eye. I love that my children are serving an ocean away. I wouldn't have it any other way. They are living out God's direction in their life. Hear from them almost daily. To my surprise, I find that Laurel and I are probably closer to them than many people whose families live right down the street from them. God has blessed us with that. And my children would not want it any other way. If they had to come home, it would break their hearts. They love what they do. Now sure, we miss them. Absolutely we miss them. And there are times that we wish they were right here. And there are times that we wish we were right there. I don't know if I've mentioned this or not, but I have a couple grandchildren and I miss them, right? There are times even when I am jealous of people whose grandkids live right here and kids live right here. There are times that I even struggle with envy. But listen to this sentence. It is not a heavy burden. It is not a burdensome thing. If they are where God wants them to be, that's good. And if they are not where God wants them to be, if they were fighting against God's direction in their life, that would be burdensome to me. That would be a struggle for me. They would struggle. We would struggle. And that would be tough. But actually, because they're where they they know they should be, it's a relief. It's kind of weird, but it's a relief. In contrast to that, little is more gnawing to your soul than the idea that life has no purpose and no direction. That you can do whatever you want to do. In fact, you've got to figure out what it is that you're going to do. If you have something, something in your life that you feel is of divine origin, that you feel is of divine nature, then getting out of bed in the morning is a good thing to do. But life without that divine purpose can be excruciating to the discerning. There's a guy named Albert Camus. My wife said, you can't call him Albert Camus. He's French, so you should use his French name. Albert Camus. Or you should anglicize it, English it, Americanize it, and just say Albert Camus. I said to my wife, I can do whatever I want. And so I said, Albert. No, I say Albert Camus. Right? Albert Camus was an author. He was an existentialist author. And he believed that life had no meaning, that it had no purpose. There's no meaning in life. There's no purpose in life. And so the question came up, well, then why not end it all? If there's no purpose in life, then why not just go ahead and, and end it? Listen to his answer and tell me if you think it is as pathetic as I think it is. Here's what he says. He says, Suicide is of little use to those who believe that life has no meaning because we believe that death has no meaning. Really? Yeah, there can be no more meaning in death than there is in life. Well, that's just depressing. If that's all you got, that is just depressing. It's not satisfying at all. Here is what is satisfying. Knowing who you are. Knowing whose you are. Knowing how you are. Knowing why you are, knowing where you are, and living a life that is flowing in the direction that God has charted for it. That is amazingly satisfying. God has a direction for history. God has a direction for your life. And when you're in it, it's a good thing. God has a direction for your life. But it might not be as specific as you've been led to believe that it would be. I mean, often when we talk about God having a direction for your life, and you notice I'm trying to avoid using the phrase, God's will for your life. Because often when we use this kind of language, people are like, oh yeah, God wants me to be a pastor, or God wants me to be a missionary, and if I don't have those two things, then I guess God doesn't want me to be anything, right? And that is just so wrong. That's so wrong. Indeed, there are individuals who have very specific calls on their life. A missionary better have a call on her life or his life, or they won't stick it out. And in fact, I would say the same as... a of a pastor, that if I did not know that this is specifically where God wanted me to be, then I wouldn't be able to do it. I wouldn't be able to stay. So yeah, there are individuals that have specific kinds of calls on their life, but but, but that specific kind of call probably isn't on everybody's life. Rather, it's a much more general kind of call. And when you feel like, well, God has a specific will for my life and he has a specific direction for my life and it encompasses everything, that can be a little laborious. It can be a little laborious because you can take it to some, some absurd places. Which house should I buy? God, what is your will on which house I should buy? Which, which car should I get? And Should I get the new one or should I get the used one? And should I buy it at this dealership or at that dealership? And God, should we get a new sofa or shouldn't we get a new sofa? God, which do you want us to do? The new sofa? Or the, God, should we get Middlesworth potato chips or Lay's? I'm going to answer that for you. Lay's. Get the Lay's. Okay. And, and, and God, listen, those kinds of things can make you crazy. God God doesn't have that specific path for you to follow where he tells you where to put every foot, so to speak. For Most of it's a lot simpler and more straightforward than that. I want to tell you how to get into that path. First, I would say to you, it begins by taking God at his word. I want to know what is God's path for me? What is God's direction for me? Take him at his word. Revelation 20 is a difficult passage to understand. Um, I said that at the onset. Anyone who says they got Revelation 20 all figured out, they're uh, lying either to you or themselves or maybe to both. That doesn't mean we ignore it or dismiss it. It has great value to it. But consider the complexity of these verses that are before us. It starts by speaking of a thousand years. It speaks of Satan being bound at the start of that thousand years. And then speaks of two resurrections, uh, one at the beginning and one at the end. It speaks of Satan remaining incarcerated for a thousand years and and then him being released at the end of the thousand years for a little while, and then then he's finally put into the abyss, and there's this Gog and Magog thing, and there's these books that are open, and then there's this book of life that's there too, and then there's this judgment, this happening. And there's this worldwide military conflict. They come from the four corners of the globe and they surround a the city that God loves. And, and there's this Gog and Magog. Did I say that? And there's fire descending and destroying the enemies of God. And, and then there's Satan being put in this pit of burning sulfur. And there's the, the, the whole idea of the, the, wow, wow, the judgment, and eternal death. And it speaks of all those things in 27 sentences in the NIV. 15 short verses you understand it all? I sure don't. Here's what I understand, though. History has a destination. That's what I understand. History has a destination, and I'm good with that to the point that I want to be part of that. I want to see my life as being part of history and having a destination. If you and I are going to travel in a direction that God has for us to go, it probably begins with just realizing he is a God of order, a God of plan, a God of purpose, and a God of destination. And that applies to all of history, and it applies to your life and mine as well. So number one, take God at his word. If you want to live the history he has for you. And second, prepare for the future that God reveals. And the first part of that would be making sure your name is written in the book of life. How do I do that? How do I make sure my name is written in the book of life? Well, it's a matter of believing that all of this wrath that you've seen in the past 19 chapters is something that all of humankind is deserving of, except for the grace of God. That God did demonstrate his love to us in this. While we were yet sinners and objects of his wrath, Christ died for us. And when we turn to him and trust that his death on the cross was for us, We're saved from his wrath. And a book is open in heaven. And someone writes your name in the Lamb's book of life. And if you've never done that, that's the order of business to take care of today. It's a matter of trusting Jesus. because, Because the last verse of chapter 20 is insanely sobering. When it says, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So number one, be sure your name is written in the book of life. Turn your heart to Christ. Ask Him to save you. Trust Him. Follow Him. And number two, live a life that demonstrates that, that reveals that you have encountered Him. How do I follow the direction that God has for my life? I live a life that shows that I get it. You you learn to be the kind of wife that God wants you to be. You learn to be the kind of dad that God wants you to be. You live the kind of life maybe of singleness that honors God. You live the kind of life maybe of widowhood that honors God. Wherever your path is taking you, you consistently say, how do I exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? How do I behave with love, joy, peace? How do I behave with kindness, goodness, faithfulness? How do I live with gentleness and self-control? If I want to follow the path that God has laid out for me, I live a life that reflects that I belong to him, and I choose to honor him in all I do. And third, if you want to live the history that God has for you, it's probably a matter of prioritizing the most important concept in life, and that is the gospel of Christ. You will never hear A more important sentence than this. Christ came to die for your sins. And if you turn your heart away from your sin toward Him and trust Him and His death to save you, you have eternal life. There is nothing I can say that is more important than that. (laughs) How do I prepare and follow God's direction in this life? I prioritize the proclamation of that message. This week on Facebook, a post came up from the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and it was a snippet of a blog post that uh, they had there. It was written by a guy named Fred Allen. I don't know Fred. The title of it was kind of a Latin pun, Reductio Ad Philanthropum. And here's what that means, reducing everything there is to a matter of giving and showing benevolence, okay? Okay. Listen as I read a little bit. I shared that on our church Facebook page, my own Facebook page, and it's also in the YouVersion Bible app. I just want to read a couple a couple of, uh, a few sentences from it. Alan asks this. What happens when a church is reduced to simply doing good deeds? Do you get that? The world understands charity, and the world welcomes charity. The world likes nothing better than efforts to help the disadvantaged, The oppressed are those in crisis. What the world does not like, however, is any indication that it is sinful and in need of Christ. The ancient Christian doctrines of sin and the supremacy of Christ are increasingly incompatible with our militantly secular culture. Any verbal representation of repent and believe is dangerously close to being classified as hate speech, a heinous crime, against the civilized social order. To counter this rather uncomfortable situation, the current trend amongst Christians is to excise or get rid of the good news and separate it from from good works. Or at least hit the mute button on any talk pointed to Jesus. Huh. Listen, we can't afford to do that. I mean, I am all for good deeds. I am all for helping the poor. We do that. Our church literally gives thousands of dollars to help people who are poor. You do that. And we go into homes and we help people where we can and when we can. And I believe that is vitally important. (laughs) But that is not the end of history. And if that is all we do, we are not following God's direction for his people. Presenting good works without presenting a crucified Christ and a need to respond to him That is a heinous treachery in the kingdom of God. You see, history is moving in a specific direction. And as important as everything else may be in this life, nothing should displace the priority of sharing the means of salvation. Faith alone, in Christ alone. Hmm. So where do you find meaning in your life? Do you ever wonder why there's not more meaning in your life? I mean, as you're sitting here today or this past week, you were thinking, yeah, I just don't know that my life has a meaning that I thought it would. Maybe the problem is you're missing the importance of passages like Revelation 20. Without such texts as Revelation 20, history really is just drifting along. If there's not an end in mind, if there's not a destination, then we're just sitting in fishing boats without our, our line in the water just kind of meaninglessly floating with the tide. That is not the case. History is not just drifting along. History is moving toward an objective. It is on a God-given course to a God-ordained destination. It has a purpose, and as you embrace that, you begin to see your own purpose. And I want to pray that you would see your place in that purpose. So let's stand together and we'll unite our hearts in prayer. So you understand what we're going to pray about? Here's what I'm going to pray for you. Because I know, I know if I were you, I'd just be waking up now. Oh, this is a prayer time. So if you missed the last couple minutes, here's what we're going to pray. Okay? We're going to pray that your life would not be marked by trivial, trivial, meaningless pursuits. Trivial, like, stuff that five years from now you're going to wonder, I don't even remember doing that. We're going to pray that your life would be marked by an awareness that there's a destiny, and there's a destination, and there's a path, and God wants you to be attentive to it. And that everything you do and the the way you walk through life would be done with that in mind for his honor and his glory, because when he is honored and he is glorified, that is to your benefit. So let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we're thankful for this time together, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit working in our lives. We thank you for your word, and how your word indicates that you are a God of purpose and intention, that you are a God who moves things and orchestrates things and ordains things to come to pass in specific ways. And if you do that with all of history, we know that you want to do that in our lives. And there might be a temptation, Father, for us to feel like, yeah, but I'm just a person who lives in Clearfield County, but we remember that your eye is on the sparrow, so we know your eye is on us, and that you have a path, that you have a direction for us to move. We want to do that. We want to live that. We want to follow that. So I pray that you would make us attentive to what is around us and what we're doing. That we would be men and women of purpose because we are men and women of destiny. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.